Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Erin Hatton about her book, Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment, published in 2020 by University of California Press. Dr. Erin Hatton is an associate professor in the University at Buffalo State University of New York Department of Sociology. Her research focuses on work in the political economy, while also extending into the fields of social inequality, labor, law, and social policy. Dr. Haddon, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, so first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. So, yes, like you said, I'm a professor of sociology at SUNY Buffalo. Here we call it UB. Um, And let's see, I went to graduate school in sociology at the University of Wisconsin. As an undergraduate student at Kenyon College, which is a tiny liberal arts college in Ohio, I didn't really study sociology at all. I was an English major and I loved it. Um, But then I kind of took a winding path. I went to the Peace Corps in West Africa. I waitressed for a year and tried to figure out what I was going to do. And then I ended up um, at Wisconsin, where I kind of learned all about and fell in love with sociology and specifically the sociology of work. Yeah, that's great. Um, So tell us a little bit first about how you got into this project. What led you to write the book? Yes. So this project, um, you know, it was also a kind of winding path into this project. Um, Although this book is about coerced labor, I did not set out to study labor coercion, not at all. Um, Initially, I was interested in studying workers who are not protected by labor and employment laws. Um, So first, I interviewed uh, recently released prisoners about the work that they do behind bars and then welfare workers. So these are people who are required to work in order to receive their public assistance. And I wanted to understand really just kind of the types of experiences these workers had, um, if they had problems at work, how they confronted them, how they understood the law, like did they care that they didn't get the minimum wage, Um, all sorts of things like that. It was a very open-ended project. But as I did interviews with these two groups of workers specifically, Really, what I started to find is, you know, the law was not central to their understanding of their labor and their experience of work. And the rather the power dynamics, the control and the the degree of power their bosses had over them 
was central. And so I kind of shifted my focus, um, continued interviewing those workers. And then I ultimately added on two other groups of workers. And those were student athletes. So division one uh, football players and basketball players. And so I interviewed them about their kind of work as athletes in college. And then finally, graduate students in the sciences and the, the labor they performed for their advisors in their graduate labs. Yeah. So how did you choose these cases? Like what inspired you to choose these particular cases? Right. So when I started the project, the first two groups were already a part of my research design. Um, so I started with them um, because they are not covered by labor and employment law as workers. Right. So they don't get the minimum wage. They don't get overtime. They um, don't get you know Family Medical Leave Act and so on. Um, and, but so, like I said, the power dynamics really came to the fore. And so I started trying to understand what was going on here. Um, but in the meantime, I also continued with my original research design. And in that design, my third group of workers was going to be domestic workers. Um, so these are people who work as house cleaners and nannies and so on, who work in people's homes. Um, so I did interview them as well. And what was interesting about that group of workers is that well, basically, they didn't fit in with the first two groups at all in terms of the power dynamics. So I was kind of slowly shifting my focus, but still proceeding with my original plan. And it suddenly became clear that like, it just didn't make sense. And so I had to go back to other books, the literature, to see what's been said about these groups of workers and the other groups of workers and try to figure out what exactly I was finding. What was this new focus of my book in terms of the power? And so I decided it became clear that these domestic workers um, whom I interviewed, um, they didn't fit in in part because their bosses just didn't have the same type of control over them. Um, and it helped me really clarify the type of labor coercion that I was ultimately analyzing, which I came to call status coercion. And I can explain that more in a minute. Um, and so when I clarified, when I defined that term, I also then later sought for other groups of workers that might be kind of parallel um, not like that I'm trying to say athletes and prisoners are the same or graduate students are like prisoners. No, not at all. But I did ultimately argue that they experienced the same type of kind of coercive power at work. Um, and so it was this very um, kind of weaving process to kind of figure out what I was studying and to put this book together. So ultimately, the domestic workers were not in this book as published. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I really want to jump right into the content of the book. There's so much good stuff in here. So what are the three modes of subjugation that you discuss in the book? And what did subjugation look like in practice in each of these case, cases, each of these jobs? Yeah, so one of the things that workers experience kind of every day on the job, um, and these different workers experience them in really different ways, but they experience various forms of, and this is not, I should note, this is not just these workers, right? All workers experience these modes of subjugation. Um, but in the book, I talk about three different modes. One, bodily surveillance and regulation, right? So the ways in which their bosses are really surveilling their movement and controlling their bodies. Um, and then the second one was degradation and abuse. So this included verbal abuse as well as um, physical abuse. And then also the third I called othering and dehumanization. So this is these workers' senses of being treated 
either um, some of them said that they felt like they were treated like an animal or an abused animal or maybe like a piece of shit. Um, some of them said, or some of them felt like they were just treated like a commodity, a thing. Um, so, for example, um, athletes. Now, not all of the athletes, but a number of the former Division One football and basketball players I interviewed said that they felt that their every movement through college was surveilled by their coaches and often by their teammates because these teams often enforce peer surveillance. Um, so, for example, they couldn't just post whatever they wanted to on social media. Their coaches, if they posted anything a little bit suspect, like a picture of them at a party or a picture of them um, in a bikini, um, their coaches might call them into the office, yell at them and make them take it down. Um, so kind of their every move and certainly their media presence was very highly regulated. They couldn't just wear anything. They couldn't just go to any college party necessarily. Um, and many of these athletes also felt highly commodified. Um, they um, couldn't earn money from their work on the courts and in the football arenas, right? As we all know, now it's a big source of debate. They can't earn money from that work. Only their coaches and their universities and the NC2A and other companies can earn money from their success um, in the basketball court or on the field. And so they felt like they kind of became pawns for other people's financial success when they couldn't earn any money at all from their work. And then finally, the third example, the degradation and abuse. Um, one of the athletes I interviewed said that verbal abuse was probably the most underreported, undercounted dimension of college sports. She felt like it was pervasive and a huge problem. Now, other athletes I interviewed also agreed that it was pervasive. They didn't always believe that it was as much of a problem. They just thought that that's how things were done. But these athletes are often really used to being yelled at and being yelled at really harshly kind of all the time. They're called girls and weak. And it's it's often just an accepted form, part of their sports, of their work. Um, but this is the type of degradation I was looking at. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that more when we talk about hegemony and how that plays into this type of work. Um, but for each of these groups, so inmates, work fair workers, grad students, and college athletes, what were the consequences of not working in a way that satisfied their supervisors or employers? Yeah, so that's the type of coercion I'm talking about, and it's a little bit different from most other workers. So the main power that usual workers experience from their bosses. The main fear is that they'll get fired. They'll lose their jobs and they'll lose their income. And that's a pretty substantial threat indeed. You know, that's the basis of economic coercion. And that is enough to keep most workers in line most of the time. Um, now, this type of coercion that these other workers are experiencing um, is the fear is not that they'll lose their jobs per se, though that may also happen. But because they are not employees. They don't have access to all of the things that you get as an employee, such as income, right? These workers may be getting something else. They may be getting scholarships or welfare benefits or very meager wages in prison. 
but they're not getting, you know, the typical wages and benefits of a regular job. So that's not the main fear. The fear for prisoners is um, usually that they'll be put in solitary confinement. If they don't do what their bosses say while on the job behind bars, they could also face physical violence. They can lose access to family visits. Um, they could, and they'll be locked up. And solitary confinement means being locked up for 23 hours a day with no human interaction. And there is no limit on how long they can be locked up. And so that's the big fear behind bars. And that's the power that their bosses hold. Um, now, for workfare workers, they can lose access to the, these elements of the social safety net. They will lose uh, public health assistance, oh, sorry, public assistance, their, their cash benefits, their Medicaid, their rent and utility voucher. All of these things that they get through the welfare system, if they don't do what their bosses say to do, they will lose that. They'll be sanctioned. Um, so, and they could be sanctioned anywhere from one month to three months to six months. And then usually they'll be back on welfare. But that time that they are sanctioned is subtracted from their total lifetime allotment of welfare benefits. They're really losing access to the social safety net. Um, now, for athletes, they um, can lose a range of things. They'll lose their playing time. That's the biggest thing that athletes told me. So, and, and this is a pretty big deal for them because for the vast, vast majority of college athletes, this is the apex of their college career. This is as far as they're going to go. Um, and there is a finite number of games for every season and every year that they can play. Um, so losing even one game is a pretty big deal for these athletes. That also impacts um, whether they can be uh, recruited to play professionally, because if you're not playing in college, you're not going to get recruited to play professionally. So not doing what your coach says can mean that you can lose your playing time. You can lose um, opportunities for professional recruitment. You can also lose your scholarship and therefore your college education because their coaches have control over their scholarships. And then for graduate students, um, their bosses, their graduate advisors have kind of similar level levers of control as for the student athletes. So they also control their scholarships or in graduate schools called funding. Um, so they can kick them out of their lab. If you know, if you don't do what your lab boss says, you're not going to be working in the lab anymore. Um, so you can lose your funding, which means you lose your graduate education, um, which also means that you lose any research that you've done um, and you lose, of course, access to future employment in the field. Um, and your advisors, the other key uh, element of control is that advisors, of course, determine um, whether graduate students can get jobs through their letters of recommendation. So this gives them kind of enormous power. They really act as gatekeepers between graduate students and future employment. And so that's the kind of power that they hold over them, which means, frankly, that graduate students basically, and all of these workers basically, do what their bosses tell them to do because the risks are too great. Right, right. And I just want to clarify for listeners, I know you said you did interviews with inmates. Did you do interviews with all of these populations? Was that your method? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes, I interviewed um, all four of these groups of workers in addition to the domestic workers. But across these four groups, I interviewed 121 workers total. total. And most of them were no longer in that position. So I interviewed recently released prisoners. Um, I interviewed 
um, recently graduated student athletes, um, recently graduated graduate, former graduate students. Um, and then the workfare workers were a bit of a mix. Some of them were still doing workfare and some of them had left workfare positions. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so going back to this concept of status coercion, how does status coercion intersect with other means of social control? Yes. So like economic coercion, this form of coercive power that these bosses can wield over these workers um, intersects with other powers that they wield, um, both kind of legal and illegal. So, um, for example, uh, sexual harassment and illegal abuse in the workplace, right? Nowhere is that okay. Nowhere is that technically legal. But when bosses have such great power over the workers as they do, say, in prison, they also end up having a lot of leverage. There's no one kind of breathing down their necks as bosses. And so they can do what they want, essentially. And that means that for abusive bosses, they can be quite abusive indeed. And that includes things like uh, physical abuse and sexual abuse. Um, it also means that these bosses, it, you know, if they're discriminatory, right, it, it, it intersects with other systems of social control and marginalization, including racism and sexism. Um, and so again, when these bosses are not controlled as bosses, right, when there are no HR departments for workers to turn to or to complain to, um, or there are no bosses, bosses breathing down their necks, monitoring their hiring and firing practices. These bosses behind bars, these bosses and workfare sites, um, college coaches, they have quite a bit of leverage to act in ways that would not be okay for regular bosses to act. Now, I'm not saying that bosses in regular workplaces are not sexist, are not racist, are not abusive. They are. They certainly are. Um, and many workers fear retribution. Um, and so, you know, there's a real disincentive for just all sorts of workers to complain. Um, and so I'm kind of identifying these other reasons why these other disincentives for these particular workers I'm setting um, because of the power their bosses hold over them, why it is also and sometimes even more difficult for them to complain when their bosses are quite abusive. For sure. Yeah. And how do race and gender affect status coercion in these forms of work? Yeah, it's an interesting and complicated question. Um, it's certainly true that within all of these workplaces, so because I'm doing qualitative research, I'm not, say, documenting variation across these workers' experiences in terms of race and gender. I just don't have kind of enough workers to make any um, strong determination in that regard. But it is very much the case that these organizations, as work organizations are, they're both raced and gendered. And so I argue in the book that, say, take, for example, prisons. Prisons are very much raced and gendered kind of institutions. We, as a society, see them, we have constructed them as these black male spaces of criminality. And as a result, the forms of punishment that corrections officers can freely wield in these spaces are forms of punishment that we as a culture deem appropriate for black male criminals. Now, as a result, um, all prisoners, 
both black and white and men and women experience these punishments. Now, they don't experience them to the same degree. Many have studies found that prisoners experience discrimination um, behind bars and, and also the privileges of being white. This is very much experienced behind bars. But I do argue, even still, that the, the type of prisoner uh, punishment, the ability to put, say, prisoners in solitary confinement for not picking up a piece of paper the way that an officer told him to pick up a piece of paper, this vast amount of punitive power that they wield, that this is shaped by the raced and gendered character of prisons as an institution and as a workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And you could see that pretty clearly in that case. Uh, Going off of that, what is the connection between the welfare state and the carceral state? Yeah, I think it's quite an interesting connection. Um, And Mm -hmm. I kind of build off other scholars who have argued that um, the the expansion and kind of we've seen, as we know, over the past um, several decades, this dramatic expansion of the carceral state has been accompanied by a dramatic contraction of the welfare state. And scholars before me have argued that these are kind of two pieces of the same whole, that this is kind of a neoliberal development where we've seen, on the one hand, this kind of broad reach and kind of punitive surveillance and punishment of especially marginalized people through incarceration, um, and also um, the broad surveillance and punishment of largely marginalized people, though in this case, women, most often, through taking away the retraction of welfare benefits. And so through these two kind of broad sweeping changes, which have been quite dramatic, um, really since the 1970s or so, we've seen um, and created this kind of structure in which um, especially black men or and men of color, and especially black women and other women of color, are being uh, punished on the one hand, whether by the carceral state, and on the other hand, by the welfare state and the retraction of benefits from them and their families. Yeah, and you talk a lot about um, how morality or immorality and privilege um, affect status coercion and justify status coercion. So tell us about more about how immorality and privilege um, sort of uphold these systems of status coercion and justify it. Yeah, sure. So, you know, these comparisons that I make in this book are sometimes uneasy comparisons. These are really different cases. And again, I want to say that I'm not saying that they're the same, right? So, but I am arguing, like I said before, that just as say um, day laborers or maybe janitors experience economic coercion on their jobs, and so do upper level managers, they also experience economic coercion on their jobs, right? So they're not the same, but they are experiencing the same type of coercion. I'm also arguing here in this book that both prisoners and welfare recipients on the one hand, and student athletes and graduate students on the other hand, These are all not the same, but they're experiencing the same type of coercion, though to different degrees. Um, So, but this, like I said, this is kind of an uneasy comparison. Um, And one of the things that I do in the book is explore the cultural narratives that kind of justify the power that their bosses are given over them. So for the first two groups, prisoners and welfare recipients, 
the, pr- the predominant narrative in contemporary America has been one of criminality. That these have been constructed as essentially fundamentally criminal and immoral groups. Um, prisoners, you know, are obviously deemed to be criminal uh, by virtue of being behind bars, even for those who are in jail who have not been convicted of anything, right? Um, but also welfare recipients who are in in modern America have been constructed as immoral by virtue of their fraudulence. They're presumed to be um, kind of illegitimately getting welfare benefits, right? So we've constructed them as immoral groups. And this presumed immorality is taken to be a justification for why they need to be controlled and surveilled and punished. Um, so this is why they need to be put in jail. This is why they need to be on lockdown. This is why they need to um, ha- have to work for their benefits. This is why they need to be surveilled while they work for their benefits. And now people are talking about also extending work requirements to food stamps and other forms of social assistance. So these narratives of immorality, these narratives of criminality are used to justify kind of the extensive punishments and surveillance and regulation of these two groups. Now, on the other side are the two student groups of workers in the study, the student athletes and graduate students. Now, these groups are not presumed to be criminal criminal at all. In fact, they're seen as the opposite. These groups are seen as highly privileged. Um, student athletes can be famous. And, and then for the few who are recruited to play professionally, they can get access to huge fame and fortune later on. You know, these are people who... Um, college students see as heroes. They have their jerseys and they put pictures of them in their dorm rooms. Um, Now, graduate students, of course, aren't such cultural icons in the same way, but they do kind of walk the halls of the ivory tower and have access to this very high status, high privilege education and future employment. Um, So these are privileged groups and they're culturally constructed as, as such, and they are quite privileged in many ways, to be sure. Um, But when I looked kind of deeper into these groups and I do this analysis of the cultural rhetoric surrounding them, there's a lot of use of this rhetoric of privilege to justify um, their kind of punitive surveillance and sometimes their hardship. So, for example, when some graduate students were seeking unionization at, say, Harvard or or, uh, NYU, a lot of people online and online forums and in newspapers were saying, are you kidding me? These, like you're saying Harvard students are workers. These are, you know, workers in car factories. These, these are people who are learning and should be thankful for the opportunity to learn. And the same thing was said of student athletes. You can see over and over again, both coaches and the NC2A and universities are using this rhetoric of privilege um, just to claim that they're not workers. That, and in fact, I um, looked at one of the athletes' handbook for the Northwestern football team. And um, there's this one kind of amazing quote in there. And the coach, this was in this long list of things basically not to say on Twitter. And one of the pieces of advice was, don't complain about um, your life on Twitter. There are Uh, Hundreds of other people would crawl through glass to be where you are today. Um, So if you don't want to be here, go home, basically. 
Um, and so this kind of rhetoric that you should be thankful, that you're lucky to be where you are, you are in a privileged position, so don't complain, was um, prevalently used to kind of silence these groups, to tell them, no, you're not workers, you should be lucky for what you have, and nothing more. That's so interesting, the comparison, even between college students and graduate or college athletes and grad students. Um, like work, like they're in the same spheres of the university, and yet they have different experiences, and yet the same in terms of this whole rhetoric of privilege. And then we don't see that at all with the workfare folks and the criminal or the, um, pe- the inmates. So I just think that was a really interesting comparison. Um, so you also talk about four ways of resistance analysis to discuss how people resist coercion and oppression in these jobs. Um, so like the level of action, the openness of the defiance, the narrative frame, and the goal. So talk a little bit about how you can use these to analyze um, how people resist coercion. And then what are three ways of categorizing resistance that you talk about? Yeah, so um, one of the things I did this, in this book was, in, in my research, was think a lot about the ways that these workers do resist. So even while I argue that, you know, for the most part, the kind of expansive power that their bosses hold over them really kind of gets their compliance. You know, for the most part, they do what their coaches say. For the most part, they do what their what the corrections officers say. But they do also resist. And they did in kind of a bunch of different ways. So what I did was I analyzed, I kind of identified different axes of resist, different ways of analyzing resistance. So as you said, the first was the level of action, kind of whether it was really at the individual level or the collective level. And then it was how openly defiant they were. So I found that at times, especially among prisoners, they were acting in resistance, but it was quite covert in nature. Whereas others were, other forms of resistance were much more overt. And then the third um, kind of access through which I could analyze um, resistance was just that how they explained it. What was the narrative frame they used to justify it? So I found that, you know, sometimes they talked about, well, I had to do it in order to be a man, right? It was about, they were talking about their sovereignty as a human being. Um, So that was one narrative frame. Um, Another might have been morality. You know, I'm working for God, Um, not that corrections officer, so I'm still going to be nice to him or I'm not going to do what he says or whatever. And then some workers framed their resistance in terms of rights, that they were either asserting their own rights or that they were um, making a statement for human rights. And then finally, I also identified the goal, like what they were working towards through their resistance. And so sometimes um, their resistance was, the goal of their resistance was to protect themselves. This was most often in prison. Um, Though also sometimes they resisted in order to gain respect. That was also very important in prison and also in these other workplaces. And then finally, some workers sought justice through their resistance. So kind of in looking at all of these different axes, sorry, it's a little complicated, but Through these different axes, I identified three kind of overlapping at times strategies of resistance. So the first one I called getting by strategies. So this is kind of an individual level action, which is often quite covert in nature, right? It's like a hidden form of resistance. Um, 
And most often it's in order to protect themselves. So like I said, uh, I often saw this behind bars. And um, now you could say, well, you know, if you're not really openly resisting, is it really resistance? And and that might be true. Um, but in prison, so much of this kind of total institution is dedicated to subjugating and degrading these people, right? They need to put them down and um, kind of assert total control over them to surveil them in every way. So I found that in those instances where um, incarcerated workers actively push back in any way, even if they are simply to maintain their um, sense of themselves in this total institution space, that could be a form of resistance. So for instance, um, a number of the prisoners I talked to talked about avoiding officers at all costs. They, they might do what they were told to do, but they weren't going to look them in the eye and they weren't even going to talk to them and they weren't, um, they were going to kind of go way around them. And so this is a form of resistance. For instance, when an officer is trying to talk with you, chat with you, joke with you, and you won't engage with them, you're not going to pretend to be friends with them. That, I argued, was this form of resistance. It was a way of getting by. It was a getting by strategy to move through the space while maintaining your sense of autonomy, your sense of, for many of these uh, male prisoners, a sense of masculinity behind bars. So that was an example of a getting by strategy. Then the second type of resistance I analyzed, I called standing up strategies. So these were also kind of individual level acts of resistance, but they were more overtly defiant. Um, so this might be kind of verbal resistance, maybe pushing back, um, or also some forms of labor resistance. Most often I saw this among workfare workers. Now, for a lot of these workers, um, their bosses could be really kind of mean. They're often quite degrading. They would tell them that they were lazy, that they were no good. They um, would kind of just put them down all the time. And so some of these workers would push back. They would push, but only just enough so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And it took some learning how to do, because sometimes they did get in enough trouble that they would lose their welfare benefits. But they would kind of, um, some of them would say, well, you can't talk to me like that, or don't talk to me like I'm your child. And then maybe the boss continues talking to her like that, or maybe the boss um, simmers down. In either case, she's pushed back. She's kind of asserted her her sovereignty, her adulthood, her sense of self in the face of this degradation. And so that was kind of one of the standing up strategies that I identified among these workers. And then finally, the last form of resistance I identified were just various forms of mobilization strategies, right? This both individual and collective action in which um, people were either mobilizing law, so kind of using law to make claims for their rights, or working together. Some workers in prison went on strike um, for the mistreatment of a fellow prisoner, right? So they refused to serve food in the mess hall. And this collective action got them all in a lot of trouble but they felt better for doing so afterwards. And so this type of strategy, the most, um, the goal that they sought was justice. And the narrative frame they used to explain it was rights. They were standing up in the name of worker rights and in their fellow inmates' rights in that scenario. Yeah, that's such a 
such a thorough um, way of categorizing all these forms of resistance and where they were used and the larger goal in mind. So like you said, like religion or morality or human rights, that sort of thing. But I thought that was really useful for someone who maybe isn't so familiar with labor studies to understand how these dynamics work. Um, so the next question, and this is something we mentioned earlier, is I would like you to define hegemony for maybe those who haven't heard of the term before. And what was hegemony and how did it affect workers and their ideas and conceptions of their work? Yeah, so hegemony is just a kind of a fancy term for a belief system that kind of the dominant belief system. It's what the powerful belief system says in this case that these workers are not real workers, that um, that prisoners and workfare workers are kind of these immoral beings who deserve to be surveilled and punished and are lucky for what they get, basically. And that the athletes are these privileged um, beings who are not workers and should not make worker claims um, and that they too are kind of lucky for what they get. So hegemony is simply a belief system, an ideology that many, many, many people believe. Um, that's kind of the nature of hegemony. Most people believe it and they do it unquestioningly. Um, and so one of the things I do in the book is explore these workers' ideas about their work and themselves as workers. And in doing so, I kind of sought to identify some of the little seeds of counter hegemony. So that's the opposite of hegemony, right? The ways in which they're pushing back against these overarching belief systems that they are not real workers and that they're not doing real work. Um, and so identify kind of different levels of hegemony. Um, so for some of the, or sorry, counter hegemony. So for some of these workers, they actually totally bought in um, to hegemonic ideals. They believe, you know, in fact, we're not real workers. And no, we're not doing real work. And yes, as prisoners, we deserve to be punished because we did something bad. Now we're incarcerated and we got to do our time and we got to do what they tell us to do, right? So that's kind of the basic buy-in to hegemony in this case, and this hegemonic beliefs about work and these workers as not real workers. Um, but a lot of these workers push back against that hegemonic belief system in various ways. So some of them believe, for example, that, okay, yes, yeah, I'm not a real worker. Let's say it's a workfare worker who's out picking up trash in a public park for six hours a day in the summer heat. Um, they don't get a real paycheck. They do get very, very meager, very meager um, public assistance. Um, and they say, yeah, this isn't a real job. I'm not a real worker, but I deserve a real job. Why do they have me out here doing this silly work, coming to the same park day in, day out, when I should be looking for a real job? And so in that way, I argue that on the one hand, they're kind of buying into this hegemonic assertion that their labor is not, quote, real work. But on the other hand, they're arguing against the hegemonic belief system that the hegemonic assertion that they don't deserve real work because they're saying, yeah, I do. I want real work. I can do real work. And I believe in work. Um, so they're pushing against hegemonic beliefs about them as not being real workers in that way. Um, 
And then other workers kind of did the opposite. They said, you know what? I'm out here picking trash day in, day out. It's hard work. I'm sweating out here. Um, this is real labor and I should be paid accordingly. Um, so in that they, way, they were really pushing back even against the argument that their labor wasn't, quote, real work and saying, yeah, this is hard work. This is real work. I deserve to be paid for it. This is real labor. Um, and a number of the people I interviewed, and again, not all of them. I mean, this was quite a heterogeneous group, and they had the full range of views about their labor and themselves and each other. Um, but quite a number of the people I interviewed did argue that either they should be they should have access to real jobs or that what they were doing was real work and they should be treated accordingly. They should have access to minimum wage or living wages um, and benefits and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting dynamic um, going from from hegemony to counter hegemony. um, And those can exist uh, even among two workers in the same setting. Um, So I'm interested in a little bit Talk, hearing you talk a little bit more about your methods, how did you gain access to these um, these populations, and did you have any trouble gaining rapport? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so for each group of worker workers, I had to kind of figure it out all over again, um, and it was never easy. And you know, I have to say from the outset, doing this research took oh goodness, I think it took six solid years. Um, so, um, so for example, I had originally planned on going inside New York state prisons to interview prisoners. I wanted to maybe possibly get a glimpse of their work and, you know, interview them behind bars about the work they were doing on the ground. Um, I got IRB approval, everything looked good. And then the New York state prison system said, no, absolutely not. You cannot come into the prisons. So I had to go back, um, to ground zero. And I ended up working with various organizations across New York who um, kind of help recently released prisoners um, get access to services and employment post-release. And so they kind of facilitated my connection with these these workers. And then I was able to interview them from there. Um, In terms of rapport, I found, you know, I can't control certainly um, how open workers are with me and and how comfortable they feel with me. And for most of these workers, I was I'm very different than they are. I am a privileged professor. I'm white. I'm female. Um, I haven't been incarcerated. Actually, I was put in jail for one night last summer as a protest. But at that time when I interviewed them, I had not been incarcerated. So you know. I was coming from a different world. Um, But for the most part, I found that people were eager to share their stories. Um, They were really quite open. I I was surprised at how open they were. Um, I also, of course, promised them full anonymity. I only took pseudonyms. I did not take their real names. And so the pseudonyms that they choose are the ones that I use in the book so that they can find themselves in my writing. But, But I had no connection to their real identities. I was quite careful and concerned about protecting their privacy and confidentiality. Um, So for the most part, that seemed to work pretty well. Um, For the workfare workers, I actually ended up going um, to workfare sites and interviewing some workers there. And then I also, through various connections, 
um, including advocacy organizations and others who work with welfare recipients. I got to work fair workers and former work fair workers through those places. And then the athletes and the graduate students, those were quite difficult indeed. Um, I found in part because I didn't want to interview anyone connected with my own university. Um, so in the book, no one that I interview um, has attended any university that I have ever attended, um, not for graduate school, not as a student athlete. So I really use kind of a snowball sampling, friends of friends of friends. I cast a wide network um, and also kind of got myself connected with, I went to a uh, conference on student athletes and so on. So I made lots of connections and then through snowball sampling eventually um, got, I did just 20 interviews in each of those groups um, from people all over the country. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I always like to hear more about people's methods and gaining access to the populations because it can be very difficult. Um, even like me as a graduate student going into a population if they're very different. Um, and then before I ask you your final question, um, I would like to know what surprised you the most about the research process and your research findings? Oh, goodness. You know, this project was full of surprises along the way. Um, you know, because I came out writing about something that was very different from what I went in to study, because I came out studying groups, the two student groups that I did not go in intending to study, um, this project was full of twists and turns. Um, and But throughout, it was enormously, I don't know, informative. I think my brain expanded many times through this process. Now, in so doing, it was ex exceedingly painful. It was a really hard, really long project. Um, and I also think that the amount of time it took was crucial. Like I couldn't have done this research and the amount of thinking it took and the amount of kind of understanding what was going on, that could not have happened quickly. So I needed the time. Um, and I had to go through kind of the mental anguish and the pain and all the writing and then the throwing out of the drafts and then the rewriting to figure it out. Um, but I think that's what made the project good in the end, at least I hope it's good, um, because I just kept working it. And so in a way, the whole thing was kind of a surprise because I actually didn't really know where I was going through so much of it. And so I don't know if that will help any graduate students out there. Um, I was so much in the dark for so much of the time during this project that really the whole thing is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful piece. Um, I, mean, I learned so much. I, I don't have a background in like labor studies or anything like that, but it was so clear and accessible for someone who maybe knows about sociology and is in the field, but wants to learn more about these populations. Um, and then also it's a great book for using um, different populations as case studies. Um, so we talk a lot about in our classes about using um, different like subpopulations as cases for something larger. And I think this is a book is a great example of that. Um, but my final question for you is what are you working on now or next? Yeah, so um, I have a couple of smaller projects in mind. Um, one is kind of a follow-up, a continuation of this work. I want to um, get in contact with some more prisoners um, or rec recently released prisoners. And I want to understand a little bit deeper about how their 
work experience behind bars shapes their um, expectations of mainstream employment. Um, so one of the things that I found was that at least some of these workers said that basically working behind bars just means that they'll take any job outside of prison, whatever it is, any kind of crappy job they're willing to take. Because, you know, as they told me, if, if you do that in prison, how could you expect anything better outside? And so I want to delve deeper into that finding to really understand more fully how their labor experience in prison shapes their expectations outside of prison. Um, and then continuing in this kind of labor coercion vein, I'm interested in studying um, the work that some people are required to do in drug rehabilitation centers. Um, so with the opioid crisis, um, we see a lot, a lot of people in rehab. Um, and in fact, rehab has become quite big business. And one of the things that some rehab centers do um, is make their residents work. Um, and so I want to understand more about the dynamics of that and how um, the participants, the workers themselves, understand their work in rehab. Those both sound like fascinating projects, and I'm interested to hear or to read it when it comes out. Um, but where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a website. It's just my name, erinhatton.com. Um, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-T-T-O-N. Com. So you can easily find me there. Um, of course, I'm on email basically 24 hours a day. Um, ee Hatton at buffalo.edu. That's always a great way to reach me. So I'm happy to talk more about my book. I'm happy to answer student questions um, or, yeah, follow up in any way. That's great. So again, this has been an interview with Dr. Aaron Hatton, author of Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment. Dr. Hatton, I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really great. 